Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. As we already know, we're attempting to do a two-part fireside chat in order to answer questions about the subject of revival and a crucial subject that goes alongside it, that of how do we hear the voice of God. And, uh, and thanks to those who have submitted questions thus far, and there is still time, as Megan said, to do so for next week. And but, so, Just by the way, sorry, interrupting, which is my gift. Um, I, did, I did say to Megan about weird and wonderful questions, but she missed a bit out, because I said, tell people to send their weird and wonderful questions in. We've got a really large rubbish bin. And, um, you know, the first requirement of a really good pastor or a good professor is a good rubbish tin, so she didn't say that. She's much more diplomatic than I am, (laughs) much kinder. (laughs) Okay, let's just, let's jump in. From the very outset, what is, or what was your thinking behind doing a series on revival and then really feeling that sense of unction from the Holy Spirit to keep going? What's your thoughts around that? Why? Um, I I think I mentioned a number of times at the beginning of the messages on revival that the aim was not just history for history's sake or or a nostalgic trip down memory lane for those of us who remember the 60s. Um, The goal was to uh, challenge our hearts, really, um, to uh, posture our lives with a sense of expectation that God can do this again, that God has done this, is doing it in places around the world, and um, summed up in that passage in Habakkuk chapter 3 where he said, Lord, we've heard of your deeds. We've heard of the wonderful things that you have done, that you are doing in other places. Do it in our day and in our time. So, yeah, to try and um, quicken our hearts really to say, Lord, would you do it in me? I think it's probably the same for both of us, but when we read about revivals, something about what we read excites us. It stirs something in us, isn't it? It's like, Lord, you know, don't pass us by. Do it again in our generation. Yeah, yeah. I think, again, I mentioned that, that old hymn, you know, mm. um, while on others thou art calling, don't pass me by, mm. you know. And, and that's, I guess, been a song or a hymn or a prayer for uh, a large part of my life, actually. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm thrilled with what God has done, but I want him to do more. I, mm. want, I want to see his fame in our generation. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Some of the questions are pretty similar, so I'm going to try and do them in couplets or three or four lots together. Language around revival is very, very important, and personally, I think often confusing when we talk about revival. So first part, we hear people say, Lord, we need to have a a revival, have a revival here in New Zealand or Australia or the UK. Send a revival to this nation, and the nation will turn back to you. I hear what they're saying, but really revival starts in the house of the Lord, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Yeah. Um, 1 Peter, I think it's 4, chapter 4, it talks about judgment begins in the house of God. And uh, not only judgment, but revival too. The the word revival is a confusing word because in some circles, revival is a a synonym for a crusade. So you hear, people, yeah, you, have, you hear people say, we're going to have a revival. We've invited our speaker and we've put out the advertising. And, and what they actually mean is they're going to have a crusade and hope that God does something really special. Mm. But that's not revival. Um, the first church, Pentecostal church that Karen and I were part of was called Martin Revival Centre. 
And, uh, you know, we saw some wonderful things, whether it was a revival centre as a moot point, I'm not quite sure that it was. But um, So the word is confusing. Um, the word revive means to bring life to something that has had life but lost it. Whenever you find a word that begins with re, it generally it's um, re- repeat, to do something again. It's, it's reconstitute, uh, to, to take things that have fallen apart, bring them back together again. Revival is to give life to something that has had life, but either has or is in danger of losing it. So you can't revive something that's dead, like the, the world is dead in its trespasses yep. and sins. It doesn't have life. So revival essentially is a word spoken to the church where you know we've had life but are in danger of losing it and mm. God breathes on it to rekindle the embers. Um, it does affect the world. Generally, it will overflow from the church to the world, but in essence, it begins in the house of God mm. in the same way judgment does. We always talk about how important language is yeah. in the sense of getting it right. And again, around this question of revival, when we pray for it or get excited about it, what do we mean by revival? What sort of revival... Are we praying for? You know, the Welsh revival was very much about salvation. A thousand people, uh, ten, a hundred thousand people within six months. Then the Hebridean was really along the lines of holiness, people just coming together. Catherine Coleman was uh, signs and wonders and healings. Toronto was, yes, signs and wonders, but more of the, the father heart of God and the, and, and the renewing of emotions. And then the Azusa Street really did transform community, brought mm. black and white, rich and poor together. Mm. So, how accurate do you think we really need to be around the language of revival and know what we're praying for? Um, I think when we start to pray for revival, we all have ideas of what that might look like um, by virtue of what we've read or perhaps what we've experienced in our past. One of the things I say is that just about every revival has its own fingerprint mm. and, and it's different. You know, as you say, that you look at those revivals, they were... Pensacola and Toronto, which you know have been in recent times, were yeah. both very, very different. Yeah. Um, you've been to both of them. Um, one full of laughter and manifestations, the other somber and holy. Somber, the sense of the holiness. People, the, the Pensacola one, just people on their knees, just in a sense waiting for God just to, to do something. It was, the, it was whilst there was worship and a lot of that came out of it, but the, the, the content of it was more somber yeah. and more the heaviness of the weightiness of God. Whereas Toronto was. More, um, yeah, celebrating, yeah, party time, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which, uh, I mean, I don't use, I don't mean that in a derogatory term. Sometimes the joy of the Lord is exactly what a congregation needs, you know. If you walked in on on Toronto, you would think that you were at a party very often. What was going on and Mm. it it, it, um, challenged this Mm. good traditional Welsh Pentecostal boy to start Mm. with. Funny story, um, completely irrelevant probably, but a church that I know um, had, you know, the Toronto phenomena happening and all sorts of manifestations, people shaking, falling on the floor, and in the midst of that, somebody had a a medical event and fell on the floor. It was a medical event. So somebody called the the ambulance, and the ambulance guys burst into the meeting to see who it was that they were supposed to be... um, and there was just people all over the floor shaking, and they thought it's a pandemic. Everybody's gone down. With them. <laughs> they, they had to direct them to the particular person that had the medical event. So, I'd love to have been in the smoker room the next day at, the, at St John's because yeah. it, it was all on, mate. <laughs> um, back to your what question. What was the question? Oh. Uh, I think each revival has its own fingerprints. 
And um, I, I think when you pray for revival, you have to have um, that awareness that what does happen could mm. be very, very different than what you're praying for. And a lot of people pray for revival, and when God does it, they say, this isn't what I'm, what this is not yeah. what I wanted. Yeah. And, and uh, suddenly the people who are, were praying for revival are its opponents. And I think we have to be very, very open to simply say, God, have your way. Come, breathe on your people, bring them to life in the way that you want to do it. Just going in the recesses of my mind, correct me if I'm wrong, but am I right in saying that the, the group that last got revival mm. are the most reluctant to receive the next one? Historically, that's been yeah. the case. Yeah, historically, um, you know, God moves. We, um, we put down our foundations, yeah. build our Bible colleges and our um, denominations and what God has done, and then God suddenly does something different. Um, and we're in a spot of bother. Mm. We either pull up stakes and move with what God is doing, or we resist it, and historically, yeah. we have resisted it. I'll read this question to you. Okay. I love the wording here. Okay. Do you think that God has certain ordained seasons where he revives his people, or do you think that he is chomping at the bit constantly to send revival, but we are often and frequently in a position to be... To, to be receptive to what he is moving. Mm. Chomping at the bit. That's yeah. a picture, Does God ch I don't think so. Thank God, chomping. Um, I, I, you know what, a lot of these questions are above my pay grade. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and you have to just say, I, I'm not quite sure. Um, I do know God is a God of seasons. You know, it says that in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 8, in the very last verse, says summer, winter, seed time, harvest, hot, cold. And um, in the natural, we need all four seasons. Uh, to just have constant summer um, uh, is not going to work. You know, I, I think it's the, there's an Arab saying that says all sunshine makes desert. And of course, we have one as Kiwis, you know, a fair weather never made a sailor. You, you actually need different seasons to do, to do and work different things in lives and in people's uh, um, communities of faith as well. So I would want to say I think God is a God of seasons. And I think one of the verses that I used in the series, Psalm 77, it says that God's way is in the sea. And the thing about the sea is it's ebb and flow. It's tides, high tide, low tide. Um, and, and it does seem as if God moves seasonally. I mean, that's true of our own lives, isn't it? As much as we would all want to live in high summer, the reality is we don't. Uh, and God can do things in the winter seasons that he cannot do in the high summer seasons. Mm. So as much as we don't like, you know, the cold, the bitterness of winter, the reality is you, you need it. I mean, Karen is a, is a gardener. I've become a gardener, you know, by proxy, really. Um, not my first calling. But I've become a gardener because I love a gardener, you know. And I remember um, her saying, oh, man, that tree needs pruning. So I've, I've got the, you know, she's, she is, you know, ready to go. And she's saying, A, not those, these. And A and B, not now. You know, there's too many leaves. You, when you're pruning, you wait for the leaves to go and then you can see the structure of the tree. You don't prune when it's, you know, in, in full bloom. Mm. And, uh, you know, God, is a, he's a good gardener, he's a vine dresser, and he knows that sometimes winter seasons are what's required in order to prune us well. 
All that to say, I think if you were forced, if you'd have forced me to answer one way or the other in those questions, is revival seasons, you know, dependent on us and God's chomping at the bit, or are there divine seasons? I'd go with divine seasons. Okay. But I suspect also he, there are times when He's looking at us and saying, "Come on, mm. chomping at the bit." I'm not sure, but come on. I'll come back to that in a moment. So, well, chomping at the bit. Yeah. Okay. Is there a recipe for revival? Uh, Charles Finney thought there was. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he yeah. read Charles Finney's book, and he said, revival's no more miraculous than a crop of wheat. You do these things, mm-hmm. you get this result. The problem with that was Charles Finney was in a season of revival. Yeah. And uh, everybody else who's tried to follow his recipe uh, haven't found it to work. Mm-hmm. And if it were simply a recipe, then surely we would have it whenever we followed the recipe. And people have come up with recipes, all my, yeah. you know, I've read about, I've read 50,000 books of, you know, this is the recipe, and not one of them have been the recipe. And I just think God's too big to be too transcendent, too wise. It's a bit like eschatological charts, you know, this and this, 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 and this is going to happen. And I always say that if someone got it right, God would change it just so that it didn't boast all the way through eternity. And uh, same with recipes. Uh, He just is not a recipe, God. My my gleanings, my understandings, very often churches, people, we can be in a time of revival and we don't really know it. And it's only with hindsight sometimes. That was certainly true for Karen and I. I mean, we got saved, you know, late, early 70. Yeah. Um, and we came into things and thought it was absolutely normal. Yeah. Um, and didn't realize probably until a decade or so later that we came into something very, very special. Mm. Um, it was the charismatic Jesus movement, sort of those two combined. And it was a season of revival and we didn't even know it. I may tell this towards the end, but in, in our first church in, in the mid to late 80s, we, it was around the time of Wimber again. Yeah. And we just, and whatever he imparted into a lot of young guys' lives, we were seeing people saved, getting up out of wheelchairs, mm-hmm. demonic confrontations, church growth that was unprecedented in three or four generations. Mm-hmm. But we didn't know that. No. We no. were just, oh, this is going well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> More. Yeah, we were the same, and Martin, we were only a small town, probably 5,000 people in the town. I remember one six-week period, we had 60 people saved in six weeks. And um, yeah, we just thought, you know, we were going to take over the town. This is God's, you know, God's doing it, and it was exciting. Um, Never dawned on us that um, it was such a special, special move of God. It was something, yeah. We... So in this year, our first church was in, in North Wales, and um, we were sent to do a replant. And the first Sunday, there were four people there. <laughs> it wasn't much to replant, but there was four people there. But five years later, when we, we moved on, we had a church of at least 200 people. Mm-hmm. And that's a town of only about 13,000. And that, like 180 of those two, uh, 200 were saved, born again in mm-hmm. that church. Mm-hmm. And we just thought that was church. Yeah. Didn't have a clue that it well, wasn't normal in that sense, but it was at that time something happening in the UK, yeah. and we were just privileged to be part of it. Yeah, it was the same here. And during that six-week season, the crazy thing is, um, for those of you who might remember this, Francis Schaeffer from the Labrie Fellowship put out a series of films called How Shall We Then Live? Mm. And Francis Schaeffer was 
quite an intellect, you know, and the reality was um, they, the films, for us at least anyway, those in those days, weren't easy to grasp where he was going. They're quite philosophical, yeah. quite theological, and we're showing them to a congregation. The funny thing was we used to have to film, uh, show the film to ourselves, take notes on what he was saying, and then show it to the congregation, and then get up and explain it. Yeah. And people got saved, just like one, you know, like 60 people in six weeks. And some of the things that happened were just extraordinary. I remember one girl coming in, her friend didn't want to come. She didn't want to go inside this crazy building, but um, this girl came She's in. probably the paramedic. <laughs> Could be. Um, she got dramatically saved. It just yeah. fell down under the power of God. She's speaking in tongues. Well, her other friend outside is wondering, where is she? And now it's like, you know, an hour and a half, two hours later, and a friend comes in and said, oh, I'm going to go and see, you know, they kidnapped her, what's going on? She opened up the door, and, and as she saw her friend lying on the floor, and you see this look of sort of surprise on her face, and she starts coming down to, to see her friend. Halfway down the aisle, she just got smitten under the power of God, falls on the ground speaking in tongues. And it's like, I'm looking at this thinking, theologically, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't think it at the time. I thought that afterwards, you know. Um, at the t and I'm thinking, you're supposed to get saved before you fill them with the Holy Spirit, God. You know, did, you're getting the order muddled a bit. But revival was like that. You know, it was, there was almost, and Edward Miller talks about this in the Argentinian revival, in a divine radiation zone. Yeah. You, people step inside it. During the Great Awakening, ships were coming into the States and they would come into American waters and the Spirit of God would fall on them. Yeah. And they'd come with all these hardened sailors, totally saved. Edward Miller talked about this one particular girl who was like this girl's friend, stayed outside. She could see through the windows what was happening and sat down on the, on the, um, the threshold of the building, the door, and just watched. At one point, she got tired and put her hand inside the building. Kaboom, on the ground, yeah. speaking in tongues. You crossed the line. Yeah. Yes. <coughs> you crossed the No. <laughs> I, I mean, I can't explain that theologically. It, it, it I don't... messes with you theologically everything, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. You work out your theology afterwards, yeah. which is really hard to do because you've got to lead it while it's going on. And I think we've talked about this, but one of the most challenging yeah. seasons in my life was during those moves as you're trying to wisely steward yeah. what's happening and not having a clue what you're doing. I think the big challenge for us was when we came back from Toronto and a number of, well, that, when that season was coming to an end, and this will lead us into our next question, really. But that season was coming to an end, but there was, there was a pressure on you as a pastor to keep it going. Mm. There was a pressure to make something happen or to, I don't know, be seen to be God's passed you by. Mm -hmm. God's left. God's left. Like Elvis, God's left the building. He's left, and sometimes he has left the building. <laughs> Let me ask you this question then. How do you know that a move of the Spirit is from God and not man-made hype and from out of hype? You know, coming to the end sometimes yep. of these outpourings. Mm. Oh, such good questions and such hard ones to answer because sometimes things are happening simultaneously where you're yeah. looking and saying, wow, that is really the Lord. And you look over there and think, oh my goodness, what are they doing? Honestly, you know, simultaneously. Yeah. 
And, and I think one of the things I've said during the series and I've said many times before is that in revival, when the tide comes in, it brings all the driftwood and, and the rubbish, and it's good, bad, and ugly. Mm. Um, and, and I think when you read revival, you're always reading it from a distance, sometimes of hundreds of years, and it always looks wonderfully attractive in print. Yeah. The reality is in, in, at the time, there were always criticism, there was always difficulty, they were always facing that exact question, is this the Lord or is this just emotional? Like the Welsh Revival, there was a lot of voices against it. Yeah, I know. They just said, we do not want this in our towns and yeah, villages. Yeah. And, and the, the interesting thing is, and I think I commented, you said when people said that, it didn't go to their it town. It didn't go there. It didn't go there. The Welsh Revival goes around a bit like, I don't know, and it went to places that it was wanted and where people didn't want it and vocalized that, it didn't go near it. It's somber, eh? Hmm. But, but yeah, I don't know. You know, you, I mean, you pray for discernment, you pray for wisdom. Um, I, I remember in the Toronto thing, there's all sorts of things happening with raising all sorts of questions for me. You know, was this the Lord? Is this emotionalism? How do you deal with people in the midst of what is God responding emotionally? And uh, I went back and I read Jonathan Edwards, um, some of the stuff that he'd read, written in The Great Awakening, yeah. and found to my great surprise and also comfort that he was dealing with exactly the questions that I was asking. And he was saying exactly the same things. Mm -hmm. Now we look back on The Great Awakening and say, wow, what a wonderful move of God. But it was messy, there was criticism, there were people who in their insecurity um, performed yeah. because they needed and wanted to be part of what was happening. And we did see that, in the, especially in the 90s, with maybe, maybe more so with the Toronto move for some reason than in some of the other movements yeah. that I've been part of. I, don't, I yeah. don't know why it was that, but it certainly was that. There didn't seem so much desire to perform, like the Pensacola one. I think that was, just mm. going to the next question, second mm. part really then. Mm. Do you think that sometimes we talk often about revival with a passion or a sense of emotion that it can sometimes seem or come across that we're trying to invoke God? Mm. Yeah. In our, in our absolute desire to see God move, you know, we can, yeah, we can do that. We can get ourselves wound up emotionally. Uh, become incredibly intense in terms of what we're looking for and mm -hmm. God, you need to, uh, and there's no rest in that. Uh, and uh, I'm, uh, you want passionate pursuit, yeah. um, but passionate pursuit and intense kind of almost anxiety are not the same thing. And again, maybe a fine line between them, but uh, um, you passionately pursue and you patiently wait. Yeah. You know, it says in James that the farmer patiently waits for the latter rain. You can't force it. You patiently wait for it as much as you intensely long for it. And the first drops of rain, you're out in it, you know, bathing in it. But you can't produce it. And I, I think that's watching churches who um, almost try and produce it. And I've never seen that healthy. That, that always bothers me. When, when the whole, when a move starts to lift, uh, you know, the, the, you get the ebb and flow, so you get the flow, then you get the ebb. As you said before, you know, you start to think, Lord, have we done something wrong? This is 
ebbing? Um, have, have, we, have we sinned? Have we, you know, is there sin in the camp? You know, and it's, you always get somebody comes up, there's sin in the camp, and you think, well, how prophetic is that? You know, I yeah. mean, well, I, could, I could tell you that for nothing, you know. Of course we know that. Is there sin here this morning? Good morning, saints. Good morning, <laughs> sinners. Yeah, we, we know that, you know, like a flip. Sin in the camp. Uh, yes, don't, don't look any further than sin in your leader. That's not prophetic, really, is it? No, no. <laughs> okay. I don't think I told you I was going to ask you this one. Oh, okay. But it's building on that one. Sorry about that. That's right. Um, we had a rather long email from someone this week, and they says, I, hear sometime, I sometimes hear people talk about expecting God to move. Mm. And, and it goes here that we have an expectation, not just a hope that the Holy Spirit will come and touch us, transform us. The whole of idea of expectation, they go and say, on top of faith, causes them some challenge. What are your thoughts around, again, this? Yeah, good. Um, I've often said expectation is the springboard of faith. I, I think, I wouldn't say you've got to be expectant for God to move. I think expectation is about posturing our hearts, yeah. not, not, not twisting God's arm. So I don't, you know, I think the question, I did read that question actually, and I thought, what well, is such a good question. And they were saying, I feel like unless we've got expectation, we can't have faith. Unless we've got faith, we can't have a move of God. The problem with that is it gets into the recipe sort of maneuver again. You do want expectation because without expecting something, sometimes you don't see what actually is happening. But that's more about you than, than twisting God's arm. And, um, and like, as I said, with this series, the goal is to posture our hearts, to pursue, to pray, not to try and twist God's arm, because he's too big to twist his arm. You know? Okay, in the series, uh, you didn't sugarcoat the truth around the weaknesses and flaws of some of the main players in revival. So how do we work through this, this huge conundrum, this issue that is character and gifting? Yeah. You know, that's one of the most confusing things. If you read about revival and some of the things, some of the people that God used amazingly, some of the most flawed individuals that you could possibly imagine. Yes. Um, whether it's Lonnie Frisbee or A.A. Allen, who was an alcoholic, or, uh, you know, some, some, some of the people were just so broken. Apparently, A.A. Allen used to sometimes be drunk. He'd get up to preach. He'd sober yep. up immediately. People would be saved, healed. Yeah. He'd walk off. He'd be drunk again. You know, I, I don't, you know, we work, on the, we work on the theory, you know, good boys and good girls. Good boys get to go to heaven, and good girls do too, and bad ones, they get to go some other place. And, and that whole kind of theology, you know, if you're good, God will, mm. it's, it's grace, it's mercy. And when God gifts people, you know, Romans says the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. He gives and he doesn't take away. You know, we, we give and if people don't behave themselves, we, we'll take it off them, if it's our children. Um, and say, right, you're, you're disqualified. You know, we're going to take your iPad off you for six months. Best of luck with that one, by the way. But uh, uh, God doesn't. Yeah. And, and the reality is... Um, the giftings that he's put in your hands, you are in some, in some respect responsible for the way that that functions, and it, and it will, and it does function. 
it's, it's a difficult one for us, even at leadership pastoral level. You know, you know something, people are working through some really big issues in their life, and what, when do you encourage, and when do you say, listen, you need to take a step back, and those, it's not just a challenge in revival, it's a challenge. Uh, yeah, it's a challenge all around. I mean, for those of you who are part of Gateway, you know that when Karen and I stepped into the church, one of the first things we were confronted with was a very, very gifted leader who had been involved in serial adultery. Yeah. And um, people, people were saved dramatically under his ministry. I, I, um, I don't know whether Jane's here this morning, but um, she told me of a time when her son, you know, wanted the baptism in the Holy Spirit. They were praying. He was halfway down the aisle, filled with the Spirit. Mm-hmm. It happened. Um, God moved. Yep. But, but our responsibility is godly character. And, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, honestly, I... I don't know how that works. I know our responsibility is to be Christ-like, and and that's our primary calling. Mm. Uh, uh, and I think when people get captivated by gifting, you know, one of the things that I've watched over the years is people who are incredibly gifted but flawed. People um, don't talk about their flaws; they just need their gifting. Yeah. Like I, I've got a really dear, dear friend who is prophetically as gifted as anybody I've ever met. I've seen him give words to people that have just been stunningly accurate, you know. Um, Alcoholic, so badly damaged, out of ministry, and people still call him up and ask for prophetic words. They're not interested in his recovery or his journey. They They just want him to perform. And he would say to me, Don, I feel like a prostitute. I'm brought in, I perform. Mm. I'm paid and nobody cares for me. They just send me out, just, you know, prophesy. Line them up and he, and he, and he can, yeah, and he, he can does. Do and he says, sometimes they send me home and they haven't even paid for my air ticket. And I've just done a week of ministry. And he said, you know, they get to work all week. He said, I work on a weekend and they send me home. And, I, and he says, I feel so used and so broken. Mm. And now we look at people and go, ah, wipe him off, you know, um, he's broken. Um, we broke him. I mean, he's got his own flaws, but the church is responsible. And you can't simply push people back into ministry because you want their gift. I mean, I think of another guy, you'll probably know him, Chris, but um, fell in immorality within weeks yep. because he was a very gifted ministry. They put him back on the stage and said, we need him too much. And, and uh, we can forgive. God forgives. Well, listen, of course God forgives. Nobody's arguing that God doesn't forgive. But leadership is not about forgiveness ministered. It's about trust that's earned. Mm. And, and you, can, you can be forgiven, but honestly, trust is another matter. That has, to be, that has to be worked on and earned. And you've got to take the time to develop that. And thrusting people into ministry because they're gifted... Mm undermines the process. Yeah. A couple of quick questions, and then I'm going to ask you for some of your highlights that you've enjoyed during revival and do the same. Don, you concluded one message, and I thought it was a great question. You encouraged us to humble ourselves before God. This is a question. This is great, but how do we do this on a daily, weekly basis? Mm-hmm. Good question. Brilliant. Because the Bible does say humble yourself. Yeah. Humble yourself under the hand of God and he will lift you up. Sometimes I think, you know, we say, God, you humble me. And he says, no, that's your job. Mm. I'll exalt you. Let's not get muddled up. If you exalt yourself, I'll humble you. 
don't let's you know let's yeah. make sure we do the right thing Can't here. Afford to get that wrong. You humble yourself, I'll lift yeah. you up. Um, humility is not about thinking less of yourself. Somebody once said it is thinking about yourself less. Mm. And and uh, it's it's not about um, putting yourself down. Romans chapter. 12, and I think it's verse 3, says, have a sober estimation of yourself. So it's not about um, putting yourself down. It's, a bit, it's, not a, it's about an accurate assessment of who you are. Mm. And I think, you know, for me, that comes out of the presence of the Lord. You recognize, unless he's gifted you, you don't have anything. It's, it's his mercy. It's his grace. And that, that, that sober assessment of who you are. You know, there's nothing sillier than false humility. You know, like, uh, when somebody says to you, oh, thank you for that sermon. That was just so, so good. And you go, oh, it's not me. It was, it was the Lord. <laughs> well, I always want to say to those people, it wasn't that good. You know, not even close to it, you know. Remember John Wimber about the woman who says, ah, oh, God gave me this voice and I'm giving it back. And he goes, no. That's right. Yeah. Sometimes that kind of, that kind of silliness, yeah. it's the assessment, you know what? Um, God, God has given a gift, so grateful for it. Yeah. Um, I, I love what Judson Cornwall used to say. And, and uh, he suggested that ministers do this, that when people say, oh, thank you for that, it was so good, you, you kindly say, oh, thank you, I appreciate your encouragement, it means a lot to me. Yeah. And, and it does, you know, it's not just a little saying, it does. But he said, you take that like a bouquet of flowers. Mm. And he said, when you go home, you lay that at the feet of the Lord. You say, Lord, it's, it is you. You don't yeah. say that to them, you say that to him, because he knows that, mm. you know. Okay. Um, just one other thing, Chris. Um, David said, I humbled my soul with fasting. Yeah. I think there's a time for dust, dust and ashes and fasting. And I don't know when that is. Um, but there are times, you know, you bow low before the Lord and you humble yourself with fasting and mm. repentance. And, yeah. Fasting an important role in revival or, or just an important role in this? I think, the, well, I think fasting is a, dis- a spiritual discipline that yeah. we're called to do in the same way that we're called to pray and called to give. and It's a spiritual discipline. I think the danger of making fasting a prerequisite of revival is you get back into the recipe thing. Mm, yeah. You know. Okay, just got a couple of minutes left. Tell us another story, a highlight or anecdote of your times, in, you mean, between us, you know, I put it down here. For me, there was the, the under John Wimber, the Toronto, the Pensacola, and then for yourself, you can add the Jesus Movement and the Welsh Revival. <laughs> <laughs> that was a low blow. The Welsh Revival was in 1904, mate. <laughs> that reminds me of a story. When we first met, I may have told this story, when we first met at Jack Hayford, and uh, I realised he was Welsh, of course, I'm Kiwi, we were both love rugby. And uh, for those of you who are rugby fans, you know the very first time the All Blacks played Wales, they lost. Hasn't happened since. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, but, but the story goes that Bob Deans, an All Black, he scored a try that would have won him the match, and the referee was so far behind by the time he got up there. The Welsh so unkindly had dragged him back, yeah. and they said, he's short. And the referee said, oh, he's short. And I said to Chris, um, the first time I met him, you're Welsh? And he said, yeah. I said, I'm Kiwi. Oh, yeah. And I said, Bob Deans did score that try. He did. He did. He said that. And he said, 
He said to me, he looked at me and he said, well, you were there, obviously, so I'll take your word for it. <laughs> and the friendship was firmly fixed, you know. I thought anybody who's that quick and that rude has got to be a good friend. Got to be a friend. <laughs> and here we are, so many years later. Yeah, sorry. Any story you want to leave with us? Oh, man, there's so many. I loved the charismatic movement and the great conferences that we went to, yeah. and some of those were just absolute highlights for me. Um, this probably, this probably le leans more into next week, which is more about hearing mm -hmm. the voice of God than anything else. But one of the highlights for me actually involved Karen. And Karen is a dreamer. You know, she has... Some, she's had some amazing dreams where God has spoken to her. And I used to say to her, she'd tell me, I dreamt such and such. And I'd say, you know what? I really reckon the Lord's in this. And that, uh, I didn't have language for it, but I, but I knew that there were dreams in the Bible. You know, I, said, I, I reckon God's made you a dreamer. And she would all say, oh, don't be silly. Don't talk rubbish. It's just dreams, you know. All right, yeah, whatever you say. Irish woman, uh, Irish. With, a, Irish woman with a chainsaw. You don't argue with them. And... We were in a we were in a Wimba meeting um, in a, a vineyard uh, pastor school actually at the time, and the speaker came through and he looked at Karen and she had this um, sort of purplish kind of top on and he said you with the purple top, and he said that that's that's the colour of revelation. What's your name? And she said Karen, and he said no no your name is Karen Karen. And I thought what? You know, American, the American accent, caring Karen. He said, you're a very caring person. He said, you've got the mantle of Zachariah the dreamer on you. Wow. You know. <laughs> very, very kindly, I might add. Well, totally you know. so, totally so. Anyway, a week later, we had another guy coming through. Karen had this, I don't know whether she had the same top on. She had changed it between, but I think she had, <laughs> better say that. She had the same, and, and the guy says, you, with the purple top, what's your name? And she said, Karen? And he said, no, no. He said, you're Karen, Karen. You're Karen, Karen. You've got the mantle of Zachariah the dreamer on you. And, like, <laughs> and it was just such a, powerful. such a powerful, powerful thing in her life. Brilliant. And it was one of the highlights of mine. Because I was right for yeah. once in my life. <laughs> in my married life, I was right. Well done, mate. <laughs> Please notice that Karen isn't here this morning. Yeah, She's yeah. <laughs> Don't go texting, because I will take, be monitoring. We can okay? take it off the podcast. Uh, my, my story's quite funny as well. I just want to leave you with this. This was in the sort of, John Wim had just been to Harrogate. We were in this time of just, God was doing some amazing things in our midst. We were this thriving church in this very small town. So one summer's evening, we hired the local football station uh, stadium and we had one side of it. And we were doing a city-wide event and it was packed out. Hmm. And um, so we were starting at seven o'clock. And so about five minutes to seven, I went up to the, to the worship leaders. I said, guys, I will start on time, but just play, some, play something just gentle <laughs> and just so those people are coming. That was my mistake. I said, just, yeah, well, they said, what do you want us to play? I said, play whatever you like. This is, I think it was 1988. I turned my back, and then they played this. <laughs> Thank you. Let's all stand. <laughs> 
Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.